Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Shut the fuck up. We are not done talking yet. I'm Sharla. And I'm Danielle. Together, we will be discussing current events, pop culture, writing, books, movies, and women's lives. We are smart, funny, and occasionally profane. Thanks for listening. See you on the other side. So today we have the very lovely and talented Casey O'Brien. And I'll tell you something about Casey is that I've been friends with her mom since I was 13 years old. Plus, her mom was actually a guest on this show last year. Duh, Jonelle. So I've known her mom since I was 13. And then I've known Casey since maybe not the second or third, something like that when she was three days old. So look at you, you've grown up into lovely young women and are so accomplished and intelligent. I'm not just saying that to make you feel good, it's actually true. Um, and well, she's a freelance writer and is doing very cool things. Hello, welcome to the show. Thank you, <clears throat> thank you. Sorry, I have a little bit of a, a tickle. Um, I'm really excited, this is my first time on a podcast. I've done some writing for podcasts, but I've always been behind the microphone writing the script. So this is new for me. Well, as you can tell, we don't script. We are, we're totally, we're very freelance when it comes to our <laughs> podcast approach. What now, what kind of podcasts have you been writing for though? That's interesting. I um, was the editorial producer for a podcast called the Unpartisan Policy Podcast, which is a, like a non-biased um, like partisan, like, like nonpartisan policy newscast thing. Um, and so we would pick a topic and then we would do like a deep dive on um, research on both sides of the aisle about who was, who was where on that issue. So we did like a CBD episode, we did an immigration episode. Um, and so I still do some occasional work for them, but um, it's always sort of a struggle for them to um, figure out their next source of funding. So it's just going to say that they can't pay you, darn it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, it was fun. Um, and then I have done occasional podcast writing for um, a podcast called SciShow, which just does like random scientific topics. Um, but again, I've never actually been on the podcast. I've always just done the writing. So, so all right. Yeah. Well, here's here's my first question for you. What are you writing right now, or in general, these last few months? Um, right now, as of today, I am working on an article about um, JetBlue, the airline, because they have um, decided to offset all of their carbon emissions in 2020. Um, mm -hmm. And they're using sustain. They're using renewable fuel in their planes. So I'm working on a story on that. Um, Where is but that in general, in the last few months, I've just done a lot of um, a lot of climate and urbanism ability stories. And the one that you're um, publishing, or the one you're writing right now, where who's that for? That Jeff. For a magazine called Green Biz. They're like a sustainability and business publication. Huh. Um, so I had to do an interview at 7.30 in the morning this morning with uh, the vice president of a company in the Midwest 
um, because they never, my sources never think about the fact that I'm on California time, but <laughs> all good. Um, yeah, they just always are like any time before 11 a.m. Eastern time or, you know, any time in the morning at Eastern time. And then when I tell them that I'm on Pacific, they're like, well, I could do like, I could do like noon Eastern. I think that's the, like the latest I could do. <laughs> um, so sometimes I just end up biting the bullet and doing interviews in the dark. <laughs> I understand. I used to have to do conference calls in Bo with Boston. I'd get up and yep. I'd get coffee and I'd stay in bed and hit mute on the conference call <laughs> and drink Yes, coffee. exactly. I did it in my pajamas. Um, and of course, Dan's husband, Bob, is the, like the expert of the early morning conference call with his 6 a.m. Armenia calls. <laughs> I know. That is true. He is the expert, and he did it. And the whole time we lived in China, he also had to get up really early to talk to the West Coast, which was 15 hours behind. So, so there's really just never been a time that he is just working at normal hours. The I would say early in his career, his it was United States based. And then it was not like, I'm going to Brazil for two weeks. Like it was just, then it's been all over the place. And you're right. And he was in different time zones. Yeah. I think that's actually really typical if a company's at all global. Like I worked for a company that had operations all around the world. So being in California was actually good. I could talk to Boston, East coast people, talk to first I talked to Europe and the East coast then take a break 5 PM, get on the phone with Asia. So, you know, actually California is a great location if you want to talk to people around the world. Kind of in the middle. Except for Armenia, apparently. <laughs> so tell us, how, now how did you get into freelance writing? Like, how long have you been out of school? What did you um, I've been out of school. I graduated in 2018, so almost two years. Um, and I had, a, I had a job with Sierra Magazine in Oakland when I first got out of school. Um, and then my contract was up for that job because it was a fellowship because so it just like was a set number of months um, And when that was done, I went to Mexico for a journalism workshop um, Which was really cool. I got a scholarship, which I'm very grateful for and so I did that and then it was like January of 2019 I Finished the workshop and got back to the States um, and have been freelance for about the past year um, and it started out at first that I just hadn't found like um, a full-time magazine job. And then it sort of turned into not wanting a full-time magazine job because I like the flexibility of writing for different people. Um, I still may end up doing like a part-time role somewhere um, and then writing on the side. But I think I like having the ability to write for multiple publications, like depending on what the story is. I think that's great. I mean, I'm actually impressed that you can do that so early in your career. Um, you know, to be able to freelance usually implies, well, you already have established, um, you know, a bunch of clips or you have a track record or, you know what I mean? Yeah, to be honest, I think partially it's that um, digital journalism has grown a ton in the last five years. Um, and so it's easier to freelance now because there's publications that didn't exist before. Um, and also like they're much more willing to take a chance on someone that they only have to pay a couple hundred dollars for a short piece versus like the dollar word that you pay in print. Um, 
So I do occasionally do print work, um, but as we all know, it's more or less dead. So um, most of my work is digital. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. There's, there's actually many more outlets than there yeah, were like when I was starting out. There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I write for like probably five or six different outlets a month. Um, and those are just like the kind of standard ones. And then I occasionally play stories with other people. Um, so it's been fun. I think there are definitely cons to freelance. It's not like um, people think it's like a really fun um, and like exciting career. And in some ways it is, but it's also like incredibly draining mm -hmm. uh, because there is no off button and there's no vacations and there's no holidays and there's no sick days. Yeah. And it's hard to say no. I mean, if opportunities pop up, it's really hard to say no because you're not really sure when the next story is going to come along. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I certainly do say no sometimes. Um, but usually I only say no when the rate is low enough that it doesn't match like my hourly requirements. Um, other than that, I, I will say yes, usually if it matches like what I try to make per hour. Um, but yeah, I think that's a big problem, especially for um, people who are just starting out in the writing world, because you can't really succeed as a freelancer until editors know you and they're not going to know you until you've done a few things. Right. But um, I wouldn't say I'm like a complete expert on it. I completely pissed off an editor yesterday, which I haven't done in a while. So we're still learning. How did you do that? Um, I think what he wanted was like a much longer piece than I realized. Um, so my contract said like anywhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred words. Um, so I was thinking he wanted something more quick hit, and I knew, so I filed something around eleven 1 hundred words, and he was like, "But I want all these other things, um, and you're missing these uh, like I want all this context and all these other things." So now I have to figure out how to fit all those things in the 400 words that I have left in the <laughs> um, But, you know, so my point is it's not particularly glamorous, but it's all good. But you make your own schedule, which is so interesting to us because we, when we worked, I, when I worked when I was young, I was like, oh, you know, grind, 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 eight to five, get your salad at lunch, you know, blah, blah. So you get to. Yeah, I do make my own schedule too, to some extent. Yeah, I think that's what appealed to me about it for sure is that you can travel. Um, and I think it's, um, it's nice too, because I don't have to do like, I don't have to do a lot of like busy work because I don't have a boss. I don't do like much like admin really. Um, but I think um, that one of the drawbacks of making your own schedule is that um, you make your own schedule. <laughs> and so you, um, you know, sometimes you're working until nine and 10 at night, or sometimes you're like, well, I'm, you really just want to go for a hike today. So maybe I, so maybe I'll just put that off. And then suddenly you have a deadline and you haven't done your work um, because there's nobody, um, there's nobody keeping you accountable. Yeah. But um, I think what I'm leaning towards for 2020 is um, probably picking up like some more stable work that would happen on a part-time basis and then um, 
still have the flexibility to make my own schedule to some extent um, because I think working from home, um, I there's like a lot of days where I realize that I like haven't left my apartment at six o'clock, um, <laughs> which is like starting to get a little old. <laughs> now that sounds like a good model. And that's kind of what I did when I was self-employed. I had like one client who was really steady. They were even on retainer. And so right, like, exactly. You know, that was like a super steady thing. And then I did a bunch of work for a bunch of other clients. Right, exactly. And I have like, I have a couple anchor clients like that, but one of them um, is a nonprofit that didn't get a grant that they wanted for this year. Um, the theme being people run out of money when you're right. freelance and you have to recalibrate. But um, I think that's really the only way to make it work is having people on retainer. Um, if you don't, I think it's just like a constant hustle. Well, that is true. Cause then you have to spend so much time and energy sort of marketing and selling. Yes. And pitching. Spend a and lot of pitching. time pitching. So is that what you do? Do you go find, like, do you, do you have story ideas that you then pitch to um, online publications or do yeah. you assign them to you? Both. So that JetBlue story, um, that was assigned. Um, somebody emailed me and was like, I need a story about this um, and you have three days. Um, <laughs> and so that happens sometimes. And then longer, like, more deep dive stories, those I tend to pitch. Um, sometimes people come to me um, who are not publications, but like people who something has happened to them or they learn something interesting and they'll suggest that I write a story about it, um, mm -hmm. which is really cool and interesting when the thing that they're telling me about relates to my work. Um, sometimes people are like, oh, you're a journalist. Like, <laughs> have you tried this new restaurant that just opened up? You should write a story about this new restaurant. Like the appetizers were really killer. Um, and I'm like, I'm not a food writer. Um, so it's sort of, that's sort of a mixed bag. But um, I would say like, I get, I get tips from like environmental organizations or um, activists about like things that they're working on. And that's really fun because then I know I don't have to go looking for the interviews. Right. So yeah. It's, um, I don't know, it's an interesting process because I think for people that are not in the writing world, um, freelance journalism is like a very mysterious process. Um, and people like don't really get how, um, how we make our living. Um, and once you're doing it, it's like surprisingly um, simple actually. You just spend a lot of your time emailing editors and asking them if they wanna pay you to write something. Um, and then when they say yes, you do it and then you spend most of your time writing invoices to get people to pay you for that thing you asked them to pay you for. Exactly, exactly. Well, I think people are sort of generally ignorant about journalism, publishing, the media in general. Like I used to do PR at a company and I would issue news releases, right? And there's so many people inside of my company who basically thought the magazines that were picking up the news releases were like a printing press. Like they were yes. going to print the news release verbatim. And I'm like, no, they're going to use that as the basis of an article. But then they yeah. might re-report it. They might want to interview some people who were quoted in the news release. Yeah, it was really, it was really, and people don't even distinguish sometimes between advertising and editorial. And yes. Um, and I think sometimes media contributes to that because mm -hmm. if you open like the New York Times or the Washington Post, like all of the sort of like 
icons of journalism that we all sort of have become accustomed to, they all have sponsored content at this point. And sometimes the thing that says sponsored content is in really small letters. <laughs> yes, it is. And so people don't literally sometimes don't know if something was sponsored or not, mm -hmm. um, which sort of contributes to this blurry line between what's editorial and what's PR and what's advertising right. um, that I think can get really fuzzy. Um, and I think contributes to people's like mistrust of journalism on some level. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good point. I and mean, there should be, I mean, I can remember reading an article once in the Boston Globe. It was all about the Boston Opera Company. And it, it sounded like they had interviewed the conductor, Sarah Caldwell. But in fact, they just picked up the news release because then I saw the same content verbatim. In another paper. In actually for the newsletter from the opera. So it was very clear that even the yeah, Boston yeah. Globe was like super lazy and uh, had just printed it verbatim and they really implied there had been an interview done. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, um, it's tricky when you can't reach a source to figure out like how to use quotes from a press release without like making it sound like you spoke to the person. Um, a lot of the time what I'll do like for that JetBlue story, I got the press release. And then um, I called the person who was like the contact on that press release mm -hmm. and was like, can I get a statement from your CEO? Um, at which point she also suggested that I speak to him at 7 a.m. Pacific time. Um, <laughs> Here's thank you. Um, and like, the thing is like, he's the CEO of JetBlue. So like, I'll probably do it. Um, I think but, I would. I think for him. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I don't think the partnership between PR and journalism is really interesting. And when I first started, um, I started freelancing in college actually. And when I first started freelancing, um, and I didn't really know PR people yet and I wasn't on their lists yet. Um, I was like really dismissive of it. And I was like, oh, I don't need PR. Like I'll contact my own sources. And the further along that I got, I was like, oh, these people are so helpful. Um, and tend to be like the nicest people that I deal with. Like PR people are always so much more pleasant to me than like whoever it is they're representing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. They're kind of paid to do that. But I mean, on the other <laughs> hand, they they kind they understand what your needs are. You know, like they might understand much better than the source what you need in terms of turnaround, your deadline. Right, totally. You need, what kind of photography you need or graphics to go with the story. You know, they're kind of there to serve you, really. Right, exactly. Um, and there's a few of them that contact me a lot that have become, like, a really good partner for me in being able mm -hmm. to, like, create good content. Um, and I think it's really hard to do PR well, and a lot of journalists are really dismissive of PR people. Um, but, like, if you're doing it well it involves most of the same skills that journalism does. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, that's, I think that is true. And a lot of people who go into PR, you know, they like majored in journalism or they did journalism for a while and then they switched over to the dark side. As it's called. Yeah, that's a classic story, right? I was like at a bar the other night with some friends and my friend Maddie was like, you're going to come to this thing this weekend, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, are you going to, you'll meet my sister. She works in PR for a tech company. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he was like, she wanted to be a journalist. And I was like, yeah, a lot of them did. Yeah. 
Um, there is, yeah, there is that. I think there is definitely the concept. Don't diss my girl, Lila. She went to, to this degree in journalism and went to PR, but she wants to go back to journalism. But I feel like she likes the PR, no? Yeah, I don't know if she likes it forever. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, she's very good at it. <laughs> um, and the few times I've used Lila for stories, which has happened a few times, um, I can tell her clients really like her, which sometimes you can tell a client like really doesn't like their PR person because they're like sort of aggressive about them. Mm -hmm. um, and like you, it's like really awkward when I'm on a conference call with a PR and their client and the client is like rude to the PR. Um, but Lila's clients, I was like, you know, I, I like Lila Schoenfield put me in touch. And they're like, oh, Lila's the best. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so that was cute. All these like, all these tech CEOs, like startup bros, just uh -huh. are relying on Lila to teach them social skills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that she did. That's good. Oh, that's a nice story, Casey. I didn't realize that. Now she's in LA doing in-house for the, whatever, the medical, oh my God, I don't even know if they do, HR. And um, is that who it is? I knew she was doing in-house for somebody, but I didn't know who it was. It's like a, um, it's like an HR firm that does software for 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 human resources management. Yes, or something. But anyway, we talked to her already. We want to talk to we want to talk to Casey and about Casey. So as your age group and your Gen Z folks and people, are you are you twenty four now or twenty three? I'm twenty four. I just turned twenty four in December. Good job. High five. Thank you. Um, what what are people your age um, thinking about politics, for one, and the environment? Um, well, I live in Berkeley, so Yay. the ones here um, are hyper-progressive um, and are really, like, really thinking and talking a lot about 2020 um, and how we, like, how we turn this election year into a possibility for real change and growth. Um, and I think a lot of them are, again, at least the ones in this area are thinking and talking mostly about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Um, there's kind of a split in like millennials I know between those two candidates, but I don't really know anyone who is like a Mayor Pete fan. Um, or like a Joe Biden voter. Um, I think Joe Biden just like doesn't um, super know how to like communicate with young people. <laughs> um, um, and Mayor Pete, I think just hasn't like really made much headway with, um, with young voters in terms of like having a super like concrete platform. Mm -hmm. Like Elizabeth Warren has an incredibly detailed platform. So does Bernie. Um, and people like having that accessible to them. Like you can go on her website and read any of her plans. You can go on Bernie's website and read any of his plans. Mayor Pete, it's a little harder to track like what his platform is. And I think young voters um, are a little more platform oriented than they were in 2016. Um, Interesting. So you're old enough. So you voted in the last election, the last presidential election, and so did your friends who are more or less your age. So, yes. um, but and they actually voted. You didn't have. Did your friends flaking out and didn't go to the polls? 
I knew people who didn't go to the polls. Um, they were not like close friends of mine, but I knew people who were like, there were people at my college who were like moderate Republicans who didn't vote because they didn't want to vote for Trump, but they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary. So they just didn't vote at all. Um, and those are dumbasses. Right. We know statistically <laughs> those people elected Trump. Um, but for the most part, most of my friends voted. Now, I was living in Washington at that point, which is um, a mail order exclusive voting state. Like they don't oh. really have polls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, the state pushes voter registration and early voting registration like really intensely and mails everyone ballots like super early and like it's a big kind of like PSA for the state. And so it's pretty easy to vote in Washington. Um, and our college like picked up people's ballots for them and drop them off and stuff like that. Wow. Um, so it was easy to vote in that election if you were a registered Washington voter. I was a California voter in that election, even though I was living in Washington. But um, I think people are realizing that didn't vote in 2016, that they made a mistake, and I'm hoping that they'll rectify that mistake this year. Um, But what I worry about is down ballot races, like people will vote in the primaries, they'll vote in the general, but they're not going to necessarily think about like who to elect for like their city council or their school board, especially millennials. Um, I don't know who's running for most of those things in my area, Um, but I should like those people matter. Absolutely. Um, So I'm going to do some, I have some homework to do for, um, for the election season. Um, you might not know this, um, Casey, the Berkeley City Council, along with the mayor, is one of the most contentious bunch of people possibly anywhere. They can't oh, I, yeah, come to uh, an agreement on anything. And then when someone's up for election, it's vicious. Like they like the, it's pretty nuts. Um, yeah, anyway. there was, there was a really contentious, um, city council, um, election here in the midterms um and then with the woman who was running for like what is now my district i didn't live here at that point but i lived by ashby bart so right on the border of oakland the one who was running here like pissed off a whole bunch of people um but i don't know if we have people up in this in this upcoming election or not because like berkeley is kind of weird about like district district yeah um But I don't know. I think that's one of the things that's funny about Berkeley is it's like such a microcosm and everybody is everybody's a registered Democrat. And yet people are still constantly fighting about politics. (laughs) I don't I don't know how that happens. Um, But like our local coffee shop is like frequently the site of like heated debates about politics between people who are in the same party. Right. Um, yeah, that's actually, that scares me in a way because like, I feel like when Democrats are busy fighting with each other yeah. and that means that they're not fighting the big fight and the real fight. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a downfall. At, well, yeah, because I think that it's, I think actually the Democratic Party, because it's more diverse than the Republican Party, um, has more internecine warfare, if you will. And the Republicans, by contrast, can get themselves all signed up. They're all in marching order. They all like stick to the 
plan. The party line. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, they're much more disciplined because, um, well, partially because they aren't as diverse, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, what we're witnessing with the GOP right now is that that, that party line is like starting to, um, starting to disintegrate because moderate Republicans are realizing that their party doesn't really represent them anymore. Yes. But um, it happened with the Democratic Party earlier and in a more extreme way. And I think there's a lot of people who are registered Democrats who are not like, who don't really like the Democratic Party because they've seen them do things that they don't like, but there's not another party that they can affiliate themselves with. So they're registered Democrats. Yeah. but, you know, people say, like, vote blue no matter who. And, like, that's really what we are going to have to do. Like, whoever wins the primary, whether you like them or not, if you're a registered Democrat, you're going to have to vote for them in the general. <laughs> like, Which is yeah. different this time because there was just, like, I knew that, actually. Someone told me in, you know, 2015 that if Hillary runs, she's going to lose. I mean, I don't yep. know why this person knew that, but they said. And then it turns out a whole bunch of people hate her guts so much that they couldn't vote. So this time, whether it's possibly Warren or Bernie, we hate them less. We'll go vote. (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, exactly. Exactly. And I think there were, I mean, I knew people in 2016 who said, I don't think she'll win um, because people really don't like her. And I just didn't believe them. I was like, they couldn't, they couldn't hate her that much. They couldn't pick a monster over her, but people did. Um, I think because they just like the misogyny was such a big part of that election. Um, they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for a woman that wasn't like exceptional in every single way. If they were going to elect a female president, she had to be perfect. Well, she had been, she'd been dinged and attacked for decades. Yeah. Really in a very concerted way, I think because she was a, such a threat to the Republican party as a yeah, I agree. democratic candidate for a variety of things. And, you know, I think, I think she, but I think you're actually right. She was like a lightning rod for this sort of misogyny that exists. Yeah. And where, where a woman, no matter what you do, you can't, you cannot win, you know, right. It's like, if <laughs> yeah. you cry, you're weak. If you're angry, you're a bitch. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like, you just get, tied up in knots and she was an excellent example right. of that i think right and she one time said a basket of um of deplorables, deplorables. and looked out over that and then you know a couple years later uh um what's the guy who written the the supreme court justice oh, oh yeah is is yelling like spit coming out of his mouth yeah and that's great yeah, that's acceptable. But poor, poor Hillary, you know, says one thing. I mean, well, we the, du- the double standard is is a real problem, I think, for women. Yeah, I mean, it's playing out on the debate stage for the Democratic primary, too. Like, the scrutiny that Elizabeth Warren is under and that Kamala Harris was under when she was running um, is not nearly the level of scrutiny that the male candidates are under. Um, Absolutely. Yep. I think that's true. Did you see that there was this one question at the last debate where everybody was asked if you could either give a gift to people or um, ask for forgiveness. It was this kind of weird question, but like all the men were like, well, I would recommend my book that I wrote. I would give people this thing I made. And Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren both apologized for getting too angry sometimes because they're so passionate about what they believe in. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Then they, so, should, they should come on our show, shut the fuck up. We're not done <laughs> ranting yet because we might change the name of our podcast because when I get, I get all just this little five minute part of our podcast. Trigger, already, trigger alert. Trigger, and my, my, my blood is getting warmer and moving around faster and I'm yelling. I'm yelling. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like there's a lot of fear with female politicians about like appearing angry. Yes. Um, which is like so shitty because usually when we say that they're angry, it's because they like actually made a policy statement. Um, but I, and that's part of what concerns me about Warren is that I don't know if she can, I don't know if she's going to be able to like push through all the misogynist shit that toppled Hillary in 2016. I just like, don't know if people have evolved that much in the last four years. No. And in fact, I think what we're seeing is a backlash, right? So against women in politics and women standing up for themselves and women doing what the hell they want to do, you know, when the backlash happens, then it's really intense. And I think Trump's election kind of unleashed a lot of that and made it totally acceptable, right? Just like his election made racism acceptable and a bunch of stuff that people might've said quietly. um, Now it's mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Anti-Semitism. I think people have been feeling that a lot. Like um, Becca who comes to trivia with Danielle and Bob a lot and lives with me here in Berkeley, my best friend from college, um, is Jewish and being Jewish is like a big part of her identity. And it's been really um, scary for her the last couple of years, especially with like the violence this year, the Long Beach shooting, like yep. it's, a, it's a really scary time to be publicly Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. And I mean, hate crimes have increased statistically significantly during there this is time a, period. There is a police car on Park Boulevard across the street from the synagogue every Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. And that breaks my heart. When I see that, I flip out. I know. It's so awful. And like, these are people that like, have been like, it's not like the Bay Area is a place where Jews have like, historically been a minority or like not accepted or not respected. Like, the Jewish community in the Bay Area has been a pinnacle of the, of our community for a really long time. And even here, people are really scared, yes. which tells you yes. something. Like, I can't even imagine being um, Jewish or queer or any other minoritized identity in, like, other parts of the country right now. I think I feel like Berkeley is such a bubble, and I'm scared to leave that bubble in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think other millennials do feel that, like... <clears throat> they're sticking to these coastal cities like Portland and New York and Seattle and LA. Um, and we're not like breaking into um, the heartland in the South, partially because I think there's a real fear of like what happens if I'm, you know, if I'm publicly out about who I am in a place where that hate is like more publicly accepted. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, and it's a completely legitimate fear. Um, so, yeah. it, re- it really is. I would certainly stop me from moving to places like that. I mean, my, I'm from Missouri and thank God I didn't settle there after college. I'd have, to, I would have had to move because it's changed so much that from when I was a kid. So, um, well, and I think like, that's one of the things that we're, su- that we're suffering from so much as a country is there is such an extreme 
divide between coastal and rural communities and there's no like there's no work being done to heal that rift and like deal with that hatred and I think if we're gonna be able to successfully come back from like the Trump hell that we're in Mm -hmm. we're gonna have to get everybody on board not just the coasts um and I think I don't know how you do that exactly but I think we need to be trying on some level. Um, Yeah, no doubt. I'm not really sure either. I mean, I think we all have contacts in the, in the Midland and they're always, they're like friends and family who are, that is really a hard place to start because those are the people that, you know, like my own sister got rid of me on Facebook (laughs) during the run up to the 2011. 16 election because I was putting too much anti-Trump stuff right so yeah yeah it's like we all we have connections throughout the United States well you can do what I'm doing and carry around 2,000 postcards in your car and (laughs) 2,000 addresses to non-unregistered voters in Texas Mm -hmm. and give them out and everybody writes postcards to the people it has to be handwritten because like if you've sent it printed they'd be like ah it's whatever but it says dear so-and-so are you registered to vote? Here's the phone number. Yeah, because I mean, that's amazing because really most of why we lose in purple states is because people don't vote. It's not because there aren't liberals there. It's because they're they're registered to turn out. So that's awesome. Danielle's doing the the Lord's work. Uh. Oh yeah. And you know, there's actually so many things that have sprung up after the 2016 election like the sister district, you know, there's a bunch of groups like that. Yeah, that's what my group right. is, is that, but we mm-hmm. broke off into East Bay um, Activist Alliance. But yeah, we started a sister district. And then what I'm working for right now with the postcards is reclaim our vote. I'm sorry, what you're saying? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I mean, there's like in Virginia, you know, the Virginia legislature just flipped. Yeah, and that was a a lot of outside influence. I did a lot yeah, of um, a lot stuff for that. Texas, Florida, you know, Florida. There's the whole thing where all these felons are now allowed to vote. I know uh, it could change everything. Yeah, but then of course they've come up with this sort of essentially a poll tax where they're forcing people to pay any kind of associated court fees and penalties with their conviction before they can vote. Of course, that's the ACLU is fight, fighting that, and you know, I'm sh- I hope that would be overturned. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I think you're absolutely right. We just have to get other people to go vote. The same people who voted for Obama twice, the right? Same people voted get, for Obama. Those people, obviously, the 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 what should we call it? Um, the electorate is different in every election. There's always some people who always vote, and some people who don't always vote. But then there's this great group in between who they vote sometimes and not always. And right. That's um, key. Yeah, I um, I got to call some voters in Iowa. You guys are reminding me I'm like on a Slack group of people oh, that yeah. have like phone numbers to call. Um, and I have to do it because we're running out of time before the primary. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's really, and it's really fun to do that, honestly. I mean, usually you get people who are sort of like-minded because that's who they want you to call, right? And it's so fun to talk to people in other parts of the country. Yeah. Hold on. So Casey and Charlotte, let's take a little break. All right, we'll take a break.
All right, and we're back. Hey, Casey, cool. what were you just going to tell us about green interests? Yeah, so Charlie was asking about um, positive environmental news, which you don't get in mainstream media very often. Um, but one of the things that's really cool about my job is that I get to talk to people who are doing positive work in the environmental sector quite often. Um, and I think there are lots of really amazing things happening, but what I'm most inspired by, I think, are um, the young climate activists that have really kind of stepped into their own this year. Um, Jamie Margolin, Greta Thunberg, um, this whole generation of youth activists that are really you know, making a powerful stand um, and being pretty successful. Um, so I have gotten to interview some of them, not, not Greta, um, but I was, I've I to ask Greta to be on our podcast, but I don't know if that's really going to work out. <laughs> you know, I think she's a little booked, um, <laughs> but I got to interview Jamie Margoline, which was really fun and really and who's inspiring. That? She's a 17-year-old climate activist from Seattle. She and Greta are contemporaries I would say oh, uh -huh. um, and it was just really fun to talk to somebody who is 17 years old and already has a really astute view about how we can mitigate the climate crisis and achieve like climate justice so that gave me a lot of hope because I was like well this girl like isn't even done with high school yet mm -hmm. and she is already has so much wisdom about all of this so we just have to kind of let those folks step into a leadership role and I think that we can make a lot of progress. I think that we really need to get control of the political situation. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like in the United States, let's say our federal government, look at the Congress. Everybody is like, they're too old and they don't have a clue and they're just like so recalcitrant, especially on the Republican side. I think the flipping of the house gave all of us a lot of hope that there's possibility of changing the way Congress looks. Um, and having young lawmakers we've already seen has made a big difference. People like AOC. Right. Um, so I think like, you know, people often ask me if being an environmental journalist is like a really um, intensely depressing job. And it's actually not at all because I talk to people all the time who are like, this is their life's work and they're really devoted to doing it well and to um to doing it what's the word like equitably like mm -hmm. not just solving the climate crisis but solving the climate crisis while like lifting up poor folks and people of color and marginalized folks so i think um there's a lot of like really awesome people doing this work and i think I have hope that they will end up in positions of political power sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. I hope that's true. Definitely. I hope so too. Um, I mean, I guess we'll see how this all plays out with this election year, but I think um, the other thing too that I tell people is that like local environmental activism, like hyper local change. Um, if you actually look at like, emissions and things like that like the u.s is actually making massive progress on those things because states and cities are taking more action on climate than they ever have before yes um so we are actually making progress toward like things like the paris climate accord 
even though we're not in those things anymore because of Trump. Um, so there is still hope even when the federal government is not actually following the will of the people, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a, that's a really good point. Like California is kind of constantly in the lead where yeah, California goes, things. the world follows, as they say. Yeah, um, but even like, why isn't it required that we all have solar panels or something? Or, and if you can't have solar panels because you can't afford it, that the government would pay for it, stuff like that. Do you know anything about the alternative? Um, well, new construction in California starting this year, I believe new homes built in California over a certain size mm -hmm. starting this year are required to have solar panels. Um, but yes they should be subsidized more than they are um and you know we need to be thinking on like a community level too like why aren't we doing like solar microgrids on like a neighborhood level why are we trying to do this at house to house um instead of like actually doing it as a group um because climate resiliency is all about community on some level right if we're gonna be able to deal with the impacts of climate change and natural disasters and things like that we're gonna have to have connections to our neighbors. So you might as well start doing that with climate solutions. Um, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> you know, maybe we, should, maybe we should do one because we did, we did one on climate change, but we could also do another one about, just like green business, like a, you told us there was a magazine called Green Business. Yes, so, they are called yeah. Green Business. Big green biz. So is that is that like mainly about alternative energy or is there other aspects? Yeah, renewables, decarbonization. Um, so when so when we talk about decarbonization, that might mean like fossil fuel free energy, but it also might mean something like um, literally like a carbon drawdown technology. Um, so actually removing carbon from the atmosphere. And mm -hmm. that does exist. Um, mm -hmm which people are always like really excited by that possibility. Um, or it might be something like, um, it might be something like utilizing seaweed as an energy source, things like that. Um, but a lot of the time what I cover for that magazine is like the moves that large companies are making to like reduce climate impact. So they might not be going like completely fossil fuel free, but like maybe they're, decarbonizing like their shipping process or maybe they're decarbonizing like certain products um so it's not like zero or a hundred sometimes it's 50 percent and still happy with 50 percent um but yeah it's um it's a cool magazine as far as i know we don't have a paywall so feel yeah. free to check it out for sure i would love to see it yeah i mean i was just thinking about when you're talking about jet blue the moves that they're making, that's really important because air travel is such a huge, huge source of car, of emissions. It's really bad, it's really bad. It it's is really, really, bad. really bad. bad, yeah. So they are starting from 2020, so like starting some point this year, I'm not sure exactly when, um, all of JetBlue's flights out of SFO will be um, with renewable fuel. Um, awesome. So Does that's that cool. Help? Does that help with emissions, the renewable yeah. fuel? Oh, yeah, good. it's 80% less, um, oh. it, it's 80% less emissions than oh. fossil fuels. Um, so that's cool. And then they're also doing, um, they're offsetting all of their emissions, which carbon offsetting is like a sort of, I don't know, 
people have mixed feelings about it, but basically it means that you are going to fund environmental and climate change projects for every pound of CO2 that you emit. Um, so it doesn't actually stop them from emitting, but it at least discourages it because they are committing to pay for every emission that they release. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Different. That's, That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like at least if other, if companies, businesses, local and state governments are working on it, at, at least some progress will be made, even if the federal government is doing little or nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Actively I think blocking it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think like, at least within the Bay Area, um, environmental issues are a really big concern of local governments. Um, you know, Berkeley just banned natural gas. So did San Jose. Um, so I think um, local governments are interested in taking action on those things and are like receptive to that. So um, I always encourage people to like, talk to their representatives about these things, because I think people are often surprised how receptive Mm -hmm. their government can be on climate change issues at least at the local level um so yeah um i yeah, should probably actually, write that story about JetBlue, but yeah okay, <laughs> okay well, yeah, yeah. We, we will certainly let you go but yeah i was just thinking the point is really well made that at the local level that's where for instance you know decisions about housing and transit happen and like you know the effort to get people out of their cars and stop driving. yeah totally there's right? a lot of that exciting is, things happening on that in the Bay Area, um, or even if they're going to stay in their cars, like at least making it, um, at least making it like a place they can get services. Where you know San Francisco has like that parking lot now, where you can park overnight, and they have social workers and like an AA meeting and all these other things like at the parking lot. So at least if you're not getting into housing yet, you're getting some services in the meantime, things like that. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, you know, I think I heard about something like that is going on in Contra Costa County, where they're getting people like places where they can safely park overnight. Right, so you don't get tickets for it. Mm -hmm. It's called like the, the triage parking lot or something. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's cool. Well, listen, we will let you get back to writing your article. All right, Look this has been much more it. fun than writing my article, but, um, but I should finish it. But thank you guys so much for having me on the show. And I'm looking forward to sharing it with people and um, just hope that you guys keep doing cool and interesting chats with people. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for being a supporter. Yeah. Of course. Appreciate you. All right, I'll, Casey, I'll see you at Trivia next of course. Tuesday. Because we rock. Yes, you we will. We don't really rock. We're like in the middle, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Fully middle of the pack. Right now, we really, how far the mighty have fallen. We need to talk Charlene David to coming. My husband is, he's a, he's a factoid factory. Yeah, he knows. Yeah, stuff. we're talking them into it. All right, that'd be All right, sounds good. Okay, thank you. All Casey. right, I'll see you on Tuesday. Bye, Dan. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our podcast we hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can get more information about it on facebook.com backslash Sharla Danielle podcast.